Welcome to Energy Matters in the Classroom with Robin Berlinski. This is the show that highlights and celebrates the kinetic and potential energy in classrooms across the globe and why it matters. We're heard nationally on your favorite podcast sites, where you'll also find a library of all of our shows. And if you happen to live in Charleston, South Carolina, we're heard Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. on the iconic 1250 WTMA with the invaluable assistance of celebrity John Quincy. And here she is, another celebrity and force of nature, Robin Berlinski. Hey, Ron. Welcome to your show. I love saying that. <laughs> Thank you. You do like saying that. All right, a little bit of business before our next great guests come in. Yes. So if you're listening to us on the radio, remember we have a podcast, so you can check that out wherever you listen and find other episodes. And also follow me on social media, Robin underscore Berlinski, where you could win a lot of prizes. We like to encourage you to listen to shows and find little nuggets inside the show and DM me back and win some cool swag. So Follow me on Instagram, Robin underscore Berlinski, and also on Facebook, The Learning Ring. Following in the footsteps of our many, many great guests, we have another one. I think the, the bar will be reset today with Josh Silverman, who started his career as a session musician and singer in his elementary school band. That's amazing. While playing competition-level classical piano, pursuits that carried him through high school. In college, he shifted into DJing, music production, and party promotions. Today, he runs Charleston Event Pros, focused on weddings, corporate events, and community programming throughout South Carolina. And he DJs, hosts karaoke nights, and throws block parties under the pseudonym Professor Ping. You can find Love him at his, at his website, charlestoneventpros.com. Welcome, Josh Silverman. Thank you for having me. Talk about energy. Oh, my gosh. Get ready. So the I, pressure's on, I, Seriously. I, I want to know more about those prizes, though. But, oh. It sounds a little like a Groucho Marx. Is a duck going to come down? Aren't you Robin giving away a free DJing session? For yeah, the there you go. Absolutely. Free karaoke. <laughs> I'm in. Okay, first of all, full disclosure, I love his wife. Yes. So Tiffany, That's why I do, saying? too. Yeah. Tiff <laughs> <laughs> Tiffany is my favorite person, and we're going to have her on the show very soon um, to talk about some arts at the Citadel. But back to Josh. Josh, okay, I met your family. I met you as a unit. So mm -hmm. I, I met Tiffany with the three boys who came to my summer camp yes. at the Children's Museum in your minivan, open the door, <sighs> and the three little favorite munchkins would get out and spend the day with that me. That was a few years ago. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it would be like two, oh, 09, 10, 11. Yeah, about like, then. Yeah. All the Cheerios would fall out when yep. the kids got out. Cheerios. <laughs> oh. oh, and then I just, that's Mi when Miss I Robin. fell in love right. with your wife, Miss Robin, and they would tell <laughs> stories about me. They told your wife once that I showed a video of an exploding raccoon, which was the very hungry caterpillar because in the end <laughs> the caterpillar and i remember tiffany called me she's like um did you show a video about an exploding raccoon i'm like what do you think like that is not a thing but anyway we have great stories together but as you all know i run engaging creative minds which is all about arts in the schools and arts and you know woohoo and innovation and creativity you are the epitome of that from probably the moment you were in kindergarten <laughs> I have a lot of questions starting with the elementary school band, but talk about your journey because right now you are full of energy in the Charleston world, but where did it begin? Thank you. Uh, yeah. Well, first, thanks for having me on the show. Um, so my father grew up in South Philly, really poor. And when he, he put himself through college and medical school, a huge believer in education, but he had to, he had to do it all himself. And when he finally settled in North Jersey, um, shout out to North Jersey, we um, 
and we were coming up, he wanted to give us all the opportunities he never had. So the exposure to the arts for us started from a very young age. And uh, everything from performing arts to opera to photography, he was a big jazz fan. And so he wanted us to take piano lessons from early on. And so I think at about age five, my brother was just slightly older. We we started in on those, those basic entry-level uh, piano lessons with Carol Arias. I still remember her. And um, uh, from there, it just went from there. So uh, when I got into grade school, I um, got into the band. Uh, but I was, so I was playing some piano, but I also played saxophone and I sang. And uh, while, while, I'm, uh, while I'm Jewish, I probably know all the Christmas carols still by memory because it was just drummed into me every year to do the performances. Uh, and um, yeah, so and it just has gone on from there. So I want to add this. Am I reading this correctly? You were playing competition level classic piano in elementary school? Yeah, so they, uh, I focused strictly on classical. So oh my God. as I got older um, and started to move up, the competition piano was a big part of that. Um, my brother made a transition over to pop music pretty early on. So he's playing Billy Joel and I'm playing Chopin. Wow. And so I, I just sort of stuck with it. Um, uh, it was a really interesting and really pressure intensive thing that continued through middle school and up through high school by the time I was... I was in high school. These were, um, you know, regional and national level competitions that I was competing in. Frankly, which is part of why I burned out on piano. By the time I was done with high school, I was done with piano. I was so um, really just kind of burned out from it, from the pressure of it. So uh, I, that's when I made a transition over to something that I found just more fun and had more personal joy in, which was, was DJing. So just the little bit of your introduction about your dad, I can't imagine the life lessons you must have learned from someone who grew up poor and obviously made quite a success of himself. Uh, good, good and bad, you know, like there, there was a lot of, um, uh, he wanted us to work hard for what we, what we received, but also the, maybe the level of what we received was outsized because he was trying to fill, I don't want to get, you know, probably a therapy podcast that I need to go on. <laughs> Another but episode. The, the um, the things he wanted to do and the exposure we had, you know, for me, so we were going to top level opera at the Met in New York as a very young age. So the bar for me was set really high. Uh, and I think that a lot of that's kind of carried over to where my production level, what I look for, even in simple productions, is a really high level of quality and care, both for the equipment, but also the performers, or, you know, in the case of brides and grooms, when I'm DJing weddings, I mean, I take really good care of them above and beyond, I think, what um, your standard typical wedding DJ might, because I was programmed that way to really do that. Um, we saw musicals and plays. He was taking me and sneaking me. My dad was a big jazz fan would sneak me into jazz clubs when I was underage to go see Oscar Peterson play. And you're right up front because now he could afford those tickets that he never could when he was young. So he was going to spend the money on that and bring us along. Even though at the time I was like, I could not understand jazz at all. Uh, looking back, I, I, I appreciate so much more all the stuff he, uh, he and my mom did to really encourage us to pursue music, um, but also the teachers I had over time, since we're, that's what we're talking about yeah, today is so education. When you say, so I love that the experiences you have had are amazing, but, um, not, but I don't like, buts, <laughs> but and, and yeah. when you, so did it affect you in school? Like was music not good enough? Like here you are, you know, 
performing concert piano competitions and you're at a jazz club and then you go to school and you're learning like twinkle twinkle little star like are you like hey this is stupid well that <laughs> that was the thing so we weren't doing that the the my first real band leader uh his name was Harry Sabanjan uh and he was like um I mean, kind of an old school, like Vegas, you know, and not even Vegas, Atlantic City style sort of session musician. Cool. And he, um, he was our instructor in grade school. And Harry's commitment to the craft was huge. And we had a really solid orchestra um, playing all sorts of music. So uh, he would push us and was, you know, kind of brash and a little loud and, um, really so passionate about the music and the, the show. And it was really, you know, the show must go on. And um, that was a huge influence for me. And so the music for me at that point was a great counterpoint to the pressure of the classical music, which is, I mean, by, it, by its nature, more strict and rigid in its format. So interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, it kind of that, it was a great release. And, and um, you know, to this day, I'm still trying, he cut one record in the, uh, in the uh, cigarette-smoked-filled record store in the next town where we always used to go and buy records and tapes growing up, um, he had one 45 that he cut of, like, it was, like, an Atlantic City, you know, rolling-the-dice-Vegas-style, like, Frank Sinatra-esque song that I'm trying to find now uh, just so I can have it because it was uh, a real important moment for oh, me. I and the influencer. Yeah, That's so cool. The business you're in is very entrepreneurial. Obviously, how did you break into it? What was the catalyst? What was the first thing you did that said, "Ah, I need to do this for a career"? So I got into um, performing in competition. You know, you're not making money, right? I wasn't performing for money up until college, uh, and even through college, I was mostly just in pickup bands and things like that. Um, my first real gig. Uh, so I was like a bedroom DJ. Uh, so not performing out, mostly at home. And a friend was throwing a rave in the, about 1994 and put me on stage uh, and uh, paid me really well for being there. And I'm like looking at, you know, the money in my hands going, hey, hey, there's some money to be made here. Um, but um, the business really expanded when we moved to Charleston in 2003. I was doing a lot of pickup gigs and bar gigs and block parties and things like that. Um, mostly as a, strictly as a performer, but I really got into production of events when we moved to Charleston in 2003 because the event industry here is so big. Uh, and um, I think the level of my level of training and the professionalism that people were looking for uh, hit, hit a hit a um, resonated with people. So uh, from there, it really took off. Well, along with the entrepreneurial piece, too, there's so much technology like when you're DJing, like I'm looking at the sound system in the studio right. and the, it's amazing. Did, did you self-teach yourself all of that? Uh, the, yes and no. So uh, I'm part of a group here locally called uh, the Charleston DJ Cafe. And we meet monthly um, club DJs, other DJs. We all meet up and they're all bringing their different technology with them. So you're seeing new stuff. You want to buy new things. We're... We're probably the worst influences on each other for buying new equipment. The toys. <laughs> right. Oh, absolutely. But uh, but over time, I also want to make it uh, more straightforward. You know, the 
the days of taking your old home stereo off the shelf and hooking up your speakers. And I, I mean, that's how I got started. Now it's much the technology's advanced to make it easier for me and also produce a higher quality. So um, you have to learn it. And there are certainly things that I'm just not getting into uh, or I'll hire someone to do for me because it's just too technically um, precise. It, it needs a level that I'm just uh, where I'm not educated. It's a lot of pressure to, to DJ a wedding. I mean, that's like the big day. You can't have anything go wrong. I, I think when you first get started, it's one of the scariest things you can do. Yeah, I bet. Um, but over time, it starts to become, there's a pattern to it and a schedule to it. Um, I realized that I, maybe it's the precision of classical piano for years, but I think I realized that um, things like weddings, they have a pacing and a schedule. You have to be at a certain place at a certain time with a microphone so that people can do toasts, not fumbling around in the back. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, other events I play where there's like a, a more of a rigid um, timeline, I'll DJ the cycle classes over at Cycle House over on Daniel Island. So they're, you know, hollering at the class people to bike faster or we're on a hill and there needs to be music of a certain BPM for a certain amount of time. And I kind of like the challenge of, of creativity within that framework. And I, I do think that goes back to some of those early influences, uh, of like playing classical. Well, you must have some innate ability to do this correctly. As you said, if I'm going to go in and do uh, cycling versus something else, you have to know already. It's not like you can even teach somebody how to do that. The, the, the really amazing DJs that you see on, you know, that are YouTube famous or playing festivals, like that's very practiced. It's very planned. So the more planning you can do going into events, whether it's corporate events or wedding, the more I'm a big fan of, of long discussions with corporate planners to talk with them about the timeline and the feel and the mood Um like anything, the more prior proper preparation prevents poor performance. So the um, necessity of that for me is really important. Sure. I mean, I've been doing this. Uh, I first tried to match beats on records and I figured it was about 93. So I've been playing music like that for a really, you know, for a long time. But um, the the challenge for me is continuing to find ways to find joy in the work that I'm doing. I don't want to get burned out like I did uh, at the end of high school with piano. And I think about that a lot. Um, I also don't um, widely advertise what I do. I'm busy, but I'm not the person out there buying up. Uh, some folks buy billboards. They're busy seven days a week, eight days a week, you know. Uh, I don't want that. I, I, I want to be able to en continue to enjoy it and feel refreshed by it and, um, and learn from it. I want to throw out something, and I, I just had this discussion this morning. I, I like to challenge my kids with this. And maybe this is a math question, but since you're into music production, could there ever be a time in the future where every single note and combination has been used and you can't make an original piece of music anymore? I, I think that... Not it's tomorrow a, it's a, or the no, next day. It's, a, it's, a, it's something, it, it, I've had this discussion, um, I have a guest for you actually. It's, um, awesome. The, um, can I say their name? Sure. Oh, so, uh, no I've, pressure for whoever this yeah, guest right. is. Right? <laughs> I, I've had this discussion with Carrie Forrest. She worked, she was working you, with, Carrie. she was working yes. with Donnelly for a uh -huh. long time and has now moved on to uh, doing um, um, work in the community. Um, and, um, but she was a DJ in college. And so we've talked for a long time about 
there's a couple aspects. Uh, one, the equipment that's being sold these days and the... Uh, in the 80s, you could be creative because you could sample people and couldn't get sued. And when they started to ratchet down on sampling, all the equipment actually started to use kind of the same, let's call it 50 sounds or beats. Okay. So uh, because they were uh, royalty free. So now these days, producers are using the same software with the same cleared royalty free beats, which is why a lot of the music sounds so similar. Uh, especially uh, certain genres, you get a lot of really similar sounding compositions. Um, the influx of AI into um, music has been a real push. Um, and I think that if you're buying things off the shelf going forward um, uh, in 10 years or 15 years, it's going to sound even more similar. Uh, there are only so many notes in a scale. But what about other types of sounds? There are plenty of musicians out there doing um, um, uh, more meditative music, using sounds from nature, uh, go going back and using classic tracks, um, uh, creating their own rhythm with their voice. Uh, I was in, at South by Southwest um, down in Austin recently, and uh, there's the beatboxing monk who he's amazing. You can look him up. He's a, a Buddhist monk, and he uses a loop station. So he'll use traditional chant and then loop the, the rhythms and then create beats on his own and does this production live uh, in front of an audience. It's, it's really, it's transformative, it's beautiful. Uh, and it's always unique because he's doing the production live. He barely records his stuff to produce it because he feels that, I mean, it's probably a very Buddhist thing to feel that it, being there in that moment, um, being present for that moment to feel and experience that music is um, what he's trying to accomplish. So there will, I think there'll always be a place for musicians who look at the constraints of what's going on or that someone's trademarked all the, you know, you see like, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, stars these days getting sued by other musicians from the 70s and the 80s. And uh, you're going to see a lot more of that. And it's going to make um, large scale production houses, I think, nervous and pop musicians nervous but you're always going to have this contingent of people who are using the technology much more creatively. Do you write your own music? Do you write music songs? Uh, sometimes I'm very sample based and probably not commercially releasable. <laughs> but you uh, write I, music. I, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. I think what's amazing about anybody who is into the music business, the, the writing is poetry, right? Mm -hmm. But creating those iconic tunes that become a part of our our culture our history our you know every beatles tune i mean all these popular songs the genius that it takes to come up with something like that it, it really is incredible i love those um i've watched a couple documentaries on netflix or whatever i saw one um taylor swift lady gaga i think but they go through their days and you right. know but it's when it just comes to them and they're sitting there writing they're sitting on their couch and they're playing you know, a little bit, and then they write stuff down. It just like flows out of them. It's it's mind boggling yeah. to me because I can't. I I'm not a musician. I don't can't read music. But. Yeah. Well, and I think the ener the energy that they put towards their work is through the lyrics and connecting with people in that way. Um, lots of those popular musicians don't write certain aspects of their music. They really focus on the lyrics and. I think that's what connects to the audience because the music, there are only so many ways to play a, you know, 
love story by Taylor Swift. There's going to be one way to do it. And um, it, you can substitute other. It's been funny to, to um, in the last mm, two or three years, there's been this growth of um, what's called stems in the DJ culture. So uh, your computer on the fly will separate vocals and um, rhythm. So you can take a song like Love Story and just take Taylor's vocals and put a whole different bass line and beat behind it that has the same um, uh, BPM. So maybe it's Taylor Swift mashed up with, I don't know, Iron Maiden, if you can make that work. And it really creates a new, it's not really um, composition from the ground up, but you are um, mashing up and creating new ideas from tracks that's the kind of music i tend to produce because it's the what i hear in my head Mm -hmm. you know is 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 how to combine those tracks together and make them work i love what you said about lyrics because a lot of teachers who are listeners you know we want to engage kids in writing more that is something that is they're they're going to be motivated to write about rather than like what did you do yesterday it's sort of like a blank slate you don't even know where to begin but to say we need you to write the lyrics to yep. a song and they get excited to know that this these words could be put to music and create something that they can listen to later is such a good tie into those standards. Absolutely. Well, so I was a I, would, I was a dual major in college, uh, art history and English writing, and not a not a literature major, but a writing major. And I think that's ultimately the challenge of poetry classes and kind of the real challenge that teachers. I see it in my own kids who are teenagers. They don't want to read poetry, but they'll absolutely read lyrics to songs, which is, you know, poetry. poetry. Duh. So I think that if teachers can get out ahead and um, structure that type of approach, you know, to, to go to a classroom of of uh, 12 and 13-year-olds and say, you know, you're going to write the next big Taylor Swift song or, you know, whoever it is, the the... Pretend you're your favorite musician and write a song and the words need to rhyme and it needs to have this type, you know, the beat, yeah, the beat, it, yeah, know, the, the rhythm yeah. of it. It's you're teaching them. You can very easily teach haikus through through music. Um, go back to the um, I, I, I got to uh, MC and, and DJ at the um, an art and poetry jam up in Goose Creek the other day. And there was a great high school and and young young adult poets um, out there, you know, doing their thing, writing poetry. Um, and I got into a discussion with one of the other hosts, and I said, you know, the 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 hip hop, the early early seventies and eighties, they're rhyming and writing, and that's their whole. It's it's very rooted in in traditional poetry when you when you break it down. That's why Kendrick Lamar wins the Pulitzer Prize for 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 writing because of what he wrote. It wasn't the music. I mean, I thought the music was relatively kind of like straightforward, but the lyric lyrically is where it's at. So to be able to, to reach out to students in that way, I think can be very valuable. It's very motivating for sure. What, what was the inspiration for professor Ping? So, um, I'm in grad school and my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, Tiffany, uh, we're watching the classic, uh, Jane Fonda film, Barbarella. And in Barbarella, uh, there's a uh, Professor Peng as a character. He, he knows everything, uh, but he's also played by Marcel Marceau, the famous mime. So this was his only s- full speaking role outside of the one line he did in the, the Mel Brooks film. Silent, uh, silent movie, wasn't it? it was, uh, yeah. Right, yeah, in silent movie. 
Um, so, but Professor Pink, so I love that juxtaposition of, you know, a mime doing a voiced character. He has a great voice, but he was this kind of odd professor in the movie that solved a lot of problems. And I, I needed a real DJ name at the time. You know, everybody was adopting DJ names. So I needed one. I said, oh, there it is. And, um, you know, and went it from works. there. Yeah, and it yeah. stuck. So, so do you look back on your history and, and was it your dad or was it someone else who was the real inspiration for what you're doing now? I think it was a lot of things. Uh, I, I pull from a lot of in different inspiration. So um, I, my dad, my mom and dad, certainly with the exposure they gave me to music and the encouragement they gave me to pursue learning how to play an instrument was formative. Teachers like Carol Arias and Harry Sabanjan were formative. Um, but over time, my brother, who was in bands and, you know, journey cover bands and things like that, um, certainly an inspirational for me. Over time, though, I look to other performers and DJs and I collaborate with a lot of them, a lot of the local folks um, where, where, where I'm learning from them, too. So they're continuing to kind of push me to get better. Uh, and problem solve with me, and and certainly as like you said, Robin, as the technology becomes more, uh, more technology comes into the into the mix. I, I need to rely on other people to not only show me the capabilities, but also um, encourage me to continue to do what I'm doing and, and and keep going. I love so I love your energy. I what I want to know because you know I'm a former teacher. What were you like in school? I picture you being hilarious. Number one, like did you crack everyone up? You're so funny. Um, not too dissimilar from where I am now. I think I've mellowed a little over the yeah. years. Yeah. So when you're when you're a DJ, sometimes you have to be a wallflower. You can't be right. like if you're at a wedding, you can't stand up there and start cracking jokes. Right. And so is that hard for you sometimes? Like tamp it down, kind of like being in school. You can't. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, wedding, weddings and corporate events. It's not. It's not about me. Um, and frankly, uh, you know, I come from a generation of DJs where we were in the back in the loft in the dark, stuck in the corner. So behind the glass uh, or, like or, 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 or like this on a mic in a studio. We weren't really for the DJs these days. You, it is much. I hate to say it this way, but it's far more about personality than it is about the, the what they're playing. Interesting. Uh, so uh, I had to really learn to be a little f kind of funnier on the mic in front of people over time. Um, hosting karaoke nights is great because it really is. I mean, when you're talking in between singers, done right, you're you're um, it, you know, it's kind of like comedy hour. Good flow, yeah. Yeah, you have to you have to keep people laughing and going, and it can be a little um, off the cuff, but also a bit irreverent and um, you know, sometimes kind of blue. But uh, at weddings are, are a little different than that. My job is to make sure everybody is um, showcased right. Look, we had we had a um, I did a wedding the other weekend where um, the rain was coming sideways and the music just needed to continue. We were outdoors, like undercover, but outdoors. You know, I mean, the bars tipping over, people are getting soaked. Oh wow! The music had to go on. The show must go on, and so well, well, um, the show must go on. But now I have to end the show. Uh, no problem. Time, you guys listening to Energy Matters in the classroom with Robin Berlinski. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. We'd love your feedback at thelearningring.com. Thanks for joining us. Until next time.